Dr. R.J. Rushduni, RR 130A and 73, Faithfulness, 7th Commandment, Sum, Saw 23. Our scripture is Psalm 23, and our subject, Faithfulness. We conclude our study of the Seventh Commandment with this study. Psalm 23, Faithfulness. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. He restoreth my soul. He leadeth me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Thou preparest the table before me in the presence of mine enemies. Thou anointest my head with oil, my cup runneth over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. The commandment, Thou shalt not commit adultery, has as its positive expression a requirement of faithfulness of husband and wife. The word faithfulness is repeated very extensively in Scripture. In fact, it is one of the most common words we encounter in the whole of the Bible. As a virtue, it is stressed throughout the law and all scripture as a religious and a moral necessity. When faithfulness is spoken of with respect to husband and wife, the word, however, has far broader connotations than the merely physical faithfulness. Faithfulness is seen, first of all, as an aspect of God's character, and therefore a character of his people, a moral attribute which reveals itself in our relationship to God and his word, in our relationship to our day-by-day responsibilities, to the people of God, to husband and to wife, to all duties under God. It becomes apparent, therefore, why we have been reading the 23rd Psalm. Because the 23rd Psalm is a psalm which speaks of the faithfulness of God. And this, of course, is the essence of the peace which this psalm communicates. The poem or song or music of this psalm because it is sheer poetry and it has a music even in speaking. 
communicate the tremendous calm. And yet, that calm and peace is in the background, set against the background of trouble. It speaks of the valley of the shadow of death, of evil, of enemies, of severe troubles and trials. And it was written in the context of tremendous difficulties by David. But it speaks to us of peace and calm and has been a psalm of comfort precisely because it stresses the faithfulness of God. Because God is our faithful shepherd, we shall not walk. He leads us and causes us to lie down in peace and safety. He restores us. He leads us safely through the valley of the shadow of death. He is faithful to us to defend us in the presence of our enemies to the point of giving us a banquet table in the place of battle, of making even the worst opposition work together for good unto us. so that we are indeed anointed by his blessing and can say with confidence that goodness and mercy will follow us to the end of our days and throughout eternity we dwell in him. The faithfulness of God. Of this the song speaks and therefore it gives comfort. But this psalm speaks also of the faithfulness of man. <clears throat> in the third verse it declares, He leadeth me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Too often the meaning of this verse is not properly understood. The paths of righteousness. What are the paths of righteousness? Very literally, in ancient times, this referred to the hard wheel tracks or ruts of righteousness. A roadway, a path, was something that wagon wheels had gradually hammered down to a hard base. And a path was something that was cut through a field or through a mountainside so that the path represented hardened, firm ground on which a man walked without deviating. When I was a boy, my sister and I played constantly with the children of a neighbor who lived on the farm in back of us. And both those children and my sister and I would go back and forth several days across a considerable acreage. As a result, we beat down a path between the two farmhouses. It was the easiest way to walk. Because if you moved out of that path, you moved on to plowed ground, soft ground, difficult ground. The path was so well beaten 
that even after the field was plowed and irrigated and cultivated, the path would still appear. It was the hardened path, the wheel tracks, as it were, of our feet constantly making a way so that it was difficult to walk out. Now, according to David, God's path of righteousness means the habits, the fixed patterns of continual obedience so that God leads us when we follow him into the sure, the established, the hardened, the safe paths of righteousness. There is a way and we are summoned to walk therein. Moses summoned Israel to obey God without turning to the right hand or the left. If they did walk in obedience, it would be well with them and their days would be prolonged. Believers are called in the scripture repeatedly the faithful. This characterizes them. They are dependable. They are faithful. Moreover, repeatedly in the Bible, it appears that the word faithful, either as a noun or an adjective, is given as the highest praise. For example, in Proverbs 20, verse 6, Revelation 17, 14, Matthew 25, 21, and elsewhere. Faithfulness, thus, is important in Scripture. Sanity, character, stability, dependability, these are aspects of faithfulness. Irresponsibility is the reverse. It is the outcome of unfaithfulness. And, of course, unfaithfulness, instability, irresponsibility are ultimately insanity. Insanity is the rejection of responsibility. It is the unwillingness to be faithful, to maintain the established habits of righteousness. It is a fleeing from our responsibilities. It is significant that modern philosophy, because it has proclaimed its freedom from God, has seen so many of its leading figures marked by incredible instability and even outright insanity. Because to be free from God, to be unfaithful to God, is to be ultimately irresponsible and finally insane. But the non-Christian mind, the anti-Christian mind, and the pagan mind are characterized by this studied war against faithfulness. Recently, a very elaborate, expensive, and profusely illustrated book dealt with Indian religion and art. And the title of the book is The Cult of Desire. 
the thesis of the book, which simply pointed out the religious background of India and of much of the sculpture of India, was simply this, that the cult of desire is the road to release to happiness, to deliverance from the burden of life. In this cult, according to the author, and I quote, the other world and this were made one, unquote. A very significant fact. In other words, there is no standard out there. The other world and this are made one so that whatever is, is right. All things are of equal value. Moreover, the author continues, life and liberation cease to be separate entities, unquote. If you are alive, you are safe. If you are alive, you are perfectly good. If you are alive, you can do no wrong. As a result, the author declares that salvation meant the total acceptance of life as holy, precisely the point that Ginsberg, in his famous poem, How, made. And he made it as a result of his study of Oriental faith. The author concludes, the holiness of desire would sanctify any vehicle. And if the mind is pure, all else, whether woman or man or animal, is but means. The individual should indulge in desire irrespective of the mate, divine, human, or bestial, unquote. In other words, the creed is one of total faithlessness, total unfaithfulness to everything except what the person desires. To accept every act as holy is, as we have seen on previous occasions, to deny the principle of discrimination between good and evil. Faithfulness is ultimately adherence to the absolute God and to his law. But unfaithfulness is made to be the systematic unfaithfulness of man to every obligation, human and divine, as man's life, joy, and pleasure. One of the proverbs of the African tribes in Africa, which cannot be literally repeated, has at this point that the greatest comfort a man can have is being unfaithful. Comfort. In other words, their religious principle being unfaithfulness, their comfort is in act, in violation of the law. Whereas Psalm 23, celebrating the faithfulness of God, rejoices that God leads us into the paths, the wheel tracks, the ruts of righteousness, of faithfulness to an established pattern. It is interesting what the logical implications of this position are. Certain books written on this same philosophy in the South Pacific among the natives there tell us that because 
such a faithfulness and they tell us this is a marvelous thing. They are delivered from our puritanical inhibition. There is therefore no attachment to any individual. And as one writer, Danielson, writes, and I quote, there was therefore no reason to prefer any particular man or woman, unquote. And this, we are told, is the greatness of the way of the South Sea people. No sense of faithfulness to any particular man or woman, let alone their husband. Total unfaithfulness. Is it any wonder that they are people who have to have someone taking care of them? They are in unfit to govern themselves. And before the coming of custodians in the form of imperial powers, they did little except to kill and to eat each other, sometimes wiping out the entire population of an area. The need for unfaithfulness as a principle of life has been an organized movement in modern times. It began almost 200 years ago, and its name is Romanticism. Romanticism. We have touched upon the evils of Romanticism before, but it is so inexhaustible a fountain of evil affecting every area of life that it is important to consider it again. One scholar, and the scholars whom I'm citing are not Christians, one scholar, Jeffrey Scott, identified the essence of beauty for romanticism as something that is strange, different, or perverted. And if you're looking for something strange as beautiful, ultimately you're going to define it as something so different that it is perverted. So the stranger, the more perverted, the object, the person, or the act the better it is the romantic. Eric Newton, another scholar, declares, and I quote, the romantic can never rejoice in the normal. What, what interests him must be the exceptional, unquote. This means, he goes on to say, and I quote, mystery, abnormality, and conflict, and a dislike of whatever is law-abiding, whatever conforms to a pattern. The romantic refuses to acknowledge the existence of law as applied to self-expression. Thou must be exceptional and follow that which is exceptional is his only commandment. Abnormality is the negative of law. Its very existence depends on its refusal to conform the law-abiding behavior, unquote. In other words, our modern world being totally conditioned virtually by the romantic movement identifies freedom with doing evil. It makes unfaithfulness a principle of life in every area and most certainly with respect to marriage unfaithfulness as their principle. This leads to, of course, progressive unfaithfulness. 
sense of perversion. It identifies artistic ability with violations of standards. It identifies character with instability. And we see as faith declines the growth of perversion and a religious principle of unfaithfulness. In fact, not only is there greater unfaithfulness, but a developing pride and boastfulness therein. Some people are so convinced that this is the way of life and the wave of the future that they are writing autobiographies in which they boast of their practice of various perversions to establish in the mind of the reader how free they are. For them, health, vitality, and character are associated with sexual license and perversion. And some, for example, now are actually writing books as Aglis has, declaring that faithfulness and morality mean repression and time. An Aglis charges that all the assassinations recently, Oswald, the assassin, and his act, the assassination of Bobby Kennedy and the assassin, all represent Orthodox Christian faith. And that these men were ostensibly, according to Aglis, Orthodox believers. And therefore, they committed these horrible crimes. It was Christianity acting in their system as a virus and a poison. This is the ridiculous extreme they go to in trying to prove that faithfulness is an evil. Their thesis, of course, is that if these assassins had been immoral men, they would have felt no impetus to create such horrible crimes. Where they ever got the idea that any of these assassins and others I have not bothered to name had any moral character, I don't know. Certainly there is no evidence of it. Faithfulness, as we have seen, is an attribute, first of all, of God. And all of Scripture declares it. God is faithful, Scripture declares, because he is the absolute sovereign, totally self-conscious, totally expressive of his character. We, because we do not have total self-consciousness, because we do not fully know ourselves and all our aptitudes, are never fully able to speak and to conform totally to that which we have declared. We may believe in controlling our temper and declare that we intend to do so, but we do not always do so. We make vows which we do not always we declare a friendship which we do not always maintain. 
because, first of all, we do not wholly know ourselves, and second, because we are not omnipotent. But God, being omnipotent, and God knowing himself wholly, is able to declare his word and to keep it absolutely. Now man was created in the image of God and called to be faithful even as God is. This means perfect sanctification. Our faithfulness cannot make us omnipotent. Our faithfulness will make us mindful of our limitations and obedient, faithful within limitations. Man fell. Man became faithless to God and faithless to all his obligations. But redeemed in Jesus Christ, we are reestablished in the image of God and therefore are recreated into faithfulness. As man grows in the image of God, in grace, he grows in faithfulness and his self-conscious awareness of his calling under God. To maintain that faithfulness to God which God requires throughout his word. To maintain his faithfulness to the word of God, to the people of God, to husband and wife in God. Maintaining that love, that loyalty, that allegiance which is required of us in the faith. Faithfulness is stability, strength, character. And as the name indicates, it is a manifestation of our faith. He who has called us is faithful. And we are called to be faithful. Faithfulness, moreover, is closely related to dominion. A man who is unfaithful has no dominion over himself. He is not capable of exercising authority in any realm. But when we are faithful to God and faithful to all our obligations, we are responsible people. We grow in our ability to exercise dominion. And therefore we can understand why God in his word terms believers the faithful and makes it a term of high praise for his elect. They are the faithful because they have been reestablished and have grown in their responsibility to exercise dominion and to subdue the earth. Thus we can understand the meaning of faithfulness in marriage. In its truest sense it means sexual fidelity and much more. It means our faithfulness to God and to one another in the Lord. Our faithful discharge of duty, of love, of dependability, of trustworthiness, of character, of strength,
strength and loyalty in adversity of cleaving one to another in the law. It means initiative and ability because it is an aspect of dominion and dominion means strength. So that our positive requirement to be faithful in marriage as in all things means to exercise dominion under God in our respective places. The word of our Lord to those who exercise dominion with the talents they had was, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Faithfulness is a communicable attribute of God. A mark of strength and character in man, whereas unfaithfulness in any realm is a mark of weakness and sin. When we reveal faithfulness, therefore, we manifest an attribute of God which God has, first of all, manifested and communicated to us. Let us pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we thank Thee that Thou art the Faithful One, that Thou who art omnipotent and who cannot lie hast been faithful unto us with Thy people faithful unto thy word, and hast called us to be thy faithful ones. Make us, O Lord, by thy grace, mindful of our responsibilities, that we may ever be faithful in the discharge of all our duties, and that we may show forth the dominion and the faithfulness unto which we have been called. Bless us to this calling in Jesus' name. Amen. Are there any questions now, first of all, with respect to our lesson? Yes. Uh, that what? If he denies, of course, any moral law, he cannot call assassination wrong. But you see, on principle, there is one evil for these people. It is Christianity. If Christianity is abolished from the world, then all evil is gone. So, he is violating his principle, but of course, the position of the ungodly is one of total self-contradiction. We cannot ask for consistency in a position that is inherently wrong. Yes. With all the 
Yes, the pragmatist is very often faithful for pragmatic reasons. For example, a few years ago, Esquire magazine had an article on the subject, is it advisable to have a mistress or uh, to uh, be engaged in adultery? They made it clear that it was a very desirable thing, but as they reviewed the matter and dealt with the law and the liabilities and the problems you could get into and how messy it could be, they finally concluded it was pragmatically a rather dangerous and a difficult thing, that very definitely maintaining a mistress was a surefire way of getting into trouble because it was too established, too obvious, too conspicuous a thing that you could uh, commit adultery on the fly, as it were, here and there hastily, and you might get by, and it could be a lot of fun, but again, think of the trouble if you were caught. So pragmatically, they decided that uh, it was very difficult to get away with, so uh, it wasn't much fun being faithful, but it was a lot of nuisance being unfaithful. Now, that's pragmatism. But the trouble with pragmatism is that it doesn't work, because pragmatism has no binding power on the person who practices it. And so the pragmatist may say this, but he is incapable of moving in terms of it. He always figures, yes, it's wrong in principle, but I can get away with it this time. So it doesn't work. Yes? for the 
Lord, he said, uh, stands to reason that the Lord's going to give me some ideas too, which I think is a good common sense approach. You get your ideas from where you want them. Yes. Yes, a good question. What have these pragmatists done? Here is the requirement of faithfulness. You get into trouble if you violate it. What has been the answer? There's quite a history here, and it's an ugly, sordid history, so I haven't bothered to go into it. But those who have studied, the sociologists and psychologists, the history of the wife-swapping cults in the last ten years, 15 years, have found this. One of the major reasons for the cult is in order to practice adultery without trouble. Because the thesis is if you both do it together with mutual knowledge, then there is no cause for complaint. And of course, there's no ground for legal action when both are equally guilty. And this has been a studied practice. Both must involve themselves. Both must be agreeable to it. Then, pragmatically, neither has grounds for complaint against the other nor any legal action. So the pragmatic principle has been applied. Now, this pragmatic principle has been carried further down the road to justify perversions that are introduced in these cults and a great deal more. So, uh, the basic principle is a humanistic one. There is no law of God out here. There's only the law of man. So if you get the consent of the persons involved in this law situation to set aside the law, then you are perfectly moral. So these people justify adultery and every perversion they get into on the grounds that it is entirely legal since they agreed to it formally beforehand. So the conclusion of pragmatism is the gutter. Any other questions? If not, I'd like to share a little item with you from the creation seminar yesterday at La Mirada. It was, incidentally, an excellent seminar. But the thing that interested me was this. During the question and answer period, a number of questions were put forth, written questions, signed. It was interesting to see the source of those questions. I went forward later and asked the chairman for permission to go through them because I was interested particularly in one. One of those questions came from a scientist at one of the major research institutes in the United States. 
It was a very respectful question. Raising a question and the man was satisfied with the answer. There was one long question insulting to the nth degree. Insulting all the persons involved, naming one by name. I believe not all of the question was read by the chairman. It concluded by saying that instead of attacking evolution, these people should show the love of Christ in their hearts. Now, it was as loveless and hate-filled a letter as anything I have read for some time. It was signed by a student who was on the staff of the school paper at that particular school. Now, to me, this is most revealing that the youngest of the questioners was the, most, was the only insolent one, and his insolence and hatred was revealed in the name of love. Most of these people who go around shouting about other people not having love are among the most hate-filled people you can encounter. They demand total love so that they can indulge in their total hate. I think this letter is so interesting, I'm going to keep it. I am considering writing a letter to the president of the school and ask that he have this young man submit to counseling because he needs it. I think that's the best way of putting the young man in his place which he definitely does need to do. Yes. any need to do so unless, of course, the matter has been brought up, but then it's very simple to correct it in the mind of a third grade child.
think you are both in agreement, but we're arguing at cross purposes. He is not for it in school, but that he believes to answer it in the minds of children, it should be fairly presented, and then it's very serious errors uh, thoroughly dealt with. I might add that uh, Dr. David Heiser's book is now out, Evolution and Christian Faith, and it is an excellent study of the picture from the standpoint of a biologist. Genesis Flood by Whitcomb and Morris is an excellent work from the standpoint of the physical sciences, and David Heiser's book from the standpoint of the biological sciences. They do complement one another beautifully. Well, our time is up, and we are adjourned. Authorized by the Calcedon Foundation. Archived by the Mount Olive Tape Library. Digitized by Christ Rules dot com